All right. Hello and welcome to the show, everybody. This is Think Well. My name is Ryan Polly, and this is the show to help you think well about the Christian faith and culture so that you can more effectively engage with the culture around you. So one of the things that's going to be unique about today's show, I'm actually going to do something I've never really done before. And that is I, I always kind of challenge people that if you have questions, I'd love to talk to you about them. And so I was on Twitter the other day and was kind of in a little Twitter conversation and Kevin jumped in on a question about the moral argument. So we kind of started discussing the moral argument for God's existence. And I finally kind of said, hey, Kevin, would you be interested if I did a show on the moral argument? Would you want to come on and ask me your questions? And so Kevin said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. So we scheduled this time. And so he is here to join me. And so uh, this is going to be a conversation between Kevin and I about the moral argument for God's existence. Is it convincing and how it applies to different situations? Uh, if you have some questions about that, uh, feel free to comment in the live chat. Um, and I'll try my best to get to those. Obviously, Kevin is kind of the priority. We're going to be bouncing some things around, but maybe if there's time at the end, we can get to your questions. Um, as well as if you want to set up a conversation like this, feel free to reach out. All the social media and all the links and everything, if you're watching on YouTube, is down in the description below. Uh, if you're just listening on podcasts or radio, this is uh, my social is at RyanPolly3. It's where you can find me, Think Well on Facebook. And I'd love to kind of set up a phone call or a conversation like this with you. So uh, with that, we're just going to jump in and see where you want to go. So first of all, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate this uh, having this chance to have this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ryan. I was really excited to be able to do something like this. Um, no, yeah, when I hear the moral argument, uh, I've heard it explained to me several times and I've never been able, been able to like fully understand it. But I'll hear from Christians all the time saying like, oh my gosh, that just makes sense to me. There has to be a God, like, because how can you say what's good and what's bad? And I'll see Christians like say stuff like this and I go, okay, I don't understand that quite thing. So if you could, Ryan, can you like kind of, break down for me, first of all, what the moral argument is, and then we can go into like examples about yeah. how I don't see this applies today. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, there's, you know, I guess you could say different formulations of the moral argument. The one that I kind of run with is a traditional William Lane Craig kind of formulation that goes like this. It would say, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. So that would be premise one. Premise two is objective moral values and duties exist. Therefore, conclusion, therefore, God exists. And so, yeah, this argument is kind of a basic, a valid deductive argument uh, with the premises. If true, the conclusion follows logically and necessarily. So the question then would be, based on those two premises, is there a connection or is premise one true that if God does not exist, that you lose objective moral values and duties? Uh, and then number two then would be, do objective moral values and duties exist? So that would kind of be the basic structure of the argument. So maybe just to lay it out here really quickly, um, uh, at least a reason for belief in those two. Uh, for premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. And, and the reason for this would be is that in order to have an objective moral value or duty, uh, for something to be objectively true, uh, just for those listening, quick comparison against subjective, something that's subjectively true is just true for the subject, true for the person. Uh, these would be opinions, uh, beliefs, you know, just personal preferences. So um, I like the Colorado Avalanche. I like um, coffee ice cream. I'm just stating the things that I like because it's based on me, the subject, and my preferences and opinions. And so a subjective truth changes from person to person. And so what may be true for me is not necessarily true for you. To state that something is objectively true is not to say 
that everyone knows it or recognizes it necessarily. Uh, but it's to say that the truth of the statement is not based on me, but it's based on something outside of me, based on the object. So if I were to say it is raining outside, it is raining right now, uh, whether it's raining or not does not depend on me. Um, and what I like and don't like, it depends on whether rain is falling from the clouds outside or not. Or to say I am in California. It's not where I want to be. I, you know, I could say I, I want to be in Hawaii or I'm in Hawaii. That doesn't mean I am uh, because that is not a truth that depends on me. The subject that depends on something outside of me, the object. And so an objective truth is something that is true for all people in all times, in all places, whether they believe it, whether they know it, or whether they even recognize it, right? Two plus two equals four. It's true for everybody. Not, it's not seven if you believe it's seven. And so the reason, premise one at least, is going to say that if God doesn't exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist is because in order to have an objective moral value or duty, to have something moral, like murder or something like that, be objective, some, depending on something outside of us, we would need to have a standard outside of us. And so if the standard is us, humans, and we get to decide, then that would be subjective morality. That would be morality that changes from person to person. In order to have objective morality, for murder to be wrong for all people, all times, all places, um, you would have to have a standard outside of us that is able to, um, to, to, to ground that statement that murder is wrong. And so without God, if God does not exist, there is no higher authority than humans. And so if we are the highest authority, then we get to kind of create the rules and therefore we get to create them however we want. That would lead to morality being subjective. And so that kind of is a very simple explanation for why in that first premise, at least, if there is no God, if there is no higher objective transcendent standard by which we can judge moral actions, then you don't have objective morality because there's not something outside of us as humans to ground that in. We would then have subjective morality. It's just morality decided by us. So I don't know if you want me to kind of stop there on that first premise at least, but that's kind of where, why God is then required um, if that objective morality actually does exist. Yeah. Okay. I kind of, I think I largely, I mean, there might be some cases where I'm like, eh, on this, but I think there's a large chunk of it that I agree with. I think my only issue, though, would be like, okay, how could we know that the morality was built objectively and not subjectively? But I guess like that 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 goes into a way another topic kind of thing that I I don't necessarily uh, want to go down to. Like if someone were to say like, hey, like, I mean, we could some other time, but like if if someone were to say like. I think that morality was built subjectively. Would you then have to go into the positive case of Christianity at that point? That's a good question. Um, I don't think you'd have to necessarily go into the positive case for Christianity. Um, I think that the moral argument can be argued for as part of kind of a, some refer to as kind of a classical apologetics or classical theism, where you can argue that there's objective morality, then it's necessary to have a God to ground that morality without it necessarily being Christianity. Now, obviously, I think it then points to a moral being and it works towards, you know, the cumulative case for Christianity. Uh, but I don't think it's 
it's necessary to start with Christianity in order to ground the moral argument. I think the moral argument is an argument that is used to move to objective Christianity. Now, one thing you you mentioned here really quickly is this idea of how do we know if something is objective or subjective? And so I think this yeah. is a common um, I think there's a common distinction that's really important here and that often comes up in conversations online where uh, someone will say, you know, something is is wrong. And it's like, well, how do we know? What if other people don't know it? And I think what this often confuses is, you know, the big philosophical terms, uh, you know, epistemology versus ontology, right? Epistemology is a study of knowledge and how we know something. Um, ontology is the nature of being, right? What, what exists, what is real. And so there's a difference between saying this is wrong, right? Ontologically, right? This, you know, wrongness exists and murder is wrong. There's a different question of how do we know it's wrong? And so we may kind of disagree on how we know it, right? A skeptic and a Christian might come to different uh, reasons or use different methods for how they know something is true. Um, but yeah. that doesn't change the fact whether or not that is true or false on kind of that ontological or that, that grounding perspective. And so, you know, some people say, yeah, I may know this through scripture. I know this through my conscience, or I know this through, and there's different ways in which we may come to a correct knowledge. Um, but it doesn't change whether that knowledge is true in and of itself. So, you know, for example, uh, a, a similar, um, uh, kind of analogy for this is, is let's say, um, there's some, yeah, I've heard uh, this example I heard somewhere else, I think from JP Moreland, but let's say there's some homeless guy that lives down at Huntington Beach here in California. And he has this belief in his head that everything written inside the Huntington Beach public restroom stall number two is true. Everything written inside this stall is true. And that's the belief that he has. And so one day he goes in there and he goes into stall number two and there written on the door of the stall says, George Washington was the first president. And he goes, well, man, stall door number two says it. Therefore, I believe it. And um, and so you have him. Then you have a, a scholar of early American history who's doing PhD dissertations and research and all this kind of work on early American history. And he, too, believes that George Washington is the first president. Now, what we recognize is that both of them came to this knowledge in a very different way. Uh, you know, the homeless guy on the Huntington, Huntington Beach bathroom, a very maybe a wrong way to come about knowledge, uh, not sure. a reliable way to receive knowledge. And the PhD professor, early American history type person has a very good way of discerning what is true from false. Yet both of them did come to that same fact that is in itself true. And the fact that George Washington is president is not true because someone believes it. It's not true because it was in a book and it's not true because it was written on a stall door inside of a bathroom at Huntington Beach. Uh, it's true because Outside of us, George Washington actually was the first president. And so that is a, a fact that's grounded in reality outside of the person. And so I think, and so it's, it's not subjective, it's objectively true. Yet each one of them came to that knowledge in a very, very different way. How do you know? Well, the book said so. How do you know? The bathroom said so. And so it's a very different way of getting to that truth, but the truth still is something that is grounded outside of them. And yeah, so what way? Yeah, go for it. I just I just think it's difficult like how could you calculate something's wrong subjectively to objectively because it's like what if someone has this take that something was subjectively was put together on a subjective moral basis in the past as well, right? That would be the only thing with that is the thing. It's like I don't I think maybe but I think I get where you're coming from where Christians 
you know, like, or some people that are convinced by the moral argument are like, oh, based off that, I do think it is objective morality. And they've distinguished the difference between that, those two. Whereas if someone were to come in and say, well, I don't think that was set up on, uh, from a deity that was set up from them or whatever. Do you see what I'm saying, I guess? Yeah. So that's where I would kind of come back and say, okay, let's say someone is going to argue uh, that this has always been subjective, right? I might respond. Yeah, do, you, yeah. do you think that all morality is subjective? Is it all just preferences and opinions? So if so you were like, having this conversation, as, yeah. Yeah. Like, so I would say like, uh, you know, I do uh, like to get it in, in my faith. It's like a soft. Yes. I don't, we don't, I don't want to go into that necessarily right now, but yeah, I would agree with the whole, like overall with objective morality, there are certain things that man, if God were to ask me to do today, I would probably say no on, I'm having a hard, I have a hard time with divine command theory. If you want, we could go into that. Uh, I wasn't, uh, kind of thing but overall i would say largely yes if that makes if that but if that's not satisfactory we can weed that stuff out if you want <laughs> yeah so one one question that i often ask is is um to tell the difference between something being subjective or objective the question is yes. could i could i be wrong so so if i were to say something like that's purely subjective right uh, my favorite my favorite flavor of ice cream and i said yeah. look look kevin um coffee ice cream is the best flavor of ice cream could you say you're wrong. Or if I said, you know, I think coffee ice cream is the best flavor of ice cream. Can you tell me that I'm wrong about that? Uh, yeah, you could be, but I don't think that'd be the plausible case for it. Well, yeah. So the question is, can, can, can my preference in a sense of something that's purely preference be wrong? So if I said, you know, I like hockey better than basketball say, well, that's false. I would say from your perspective, if that's what you think, like, yeah, that's fine. Right. So the, the question, the, the point is, is, is if something is purely subjective, I cannot be wrong. So, so it would make no sense for you to say, if I said, I think hockey is more interesting than basketball. And you say, well, that's false. Now you might think basketball is more interesting, but to claim, to say that my statement that I think hockey is more interesting than basketball is false is, is ridiculous because my, my subjective opinions and beliefs cannot be wrong. Now, I can lie to you about something, but I can't be wrong. So if I said, I like coffee ice cream better than chocolate ice cream, that's false. No, it's not, because that's what I like. Right. And so right. one way that I like to think about this is a subjective belief or a subjective claim cannot be false. Because this is what I like. And because the truth is grounded in me, the truth is based in me, I cannot be wrong if that's actually what I believe, if that is really my opinion. If something is objective, then it can be false, right? If I said two plus two is seven and you go, well, that's false because you can actually appeal to a standard outside of us to show that my claim is false. And so the question that I would kind of push back on, if someone says all morality is subjective. Now, if that's true, then, then the individual's claim cannot be false. So if someone said, I think murder is good, would we have to say, yeah, you're right. If that's what you believe, yeah. then then murder is good. Or could we actually say, no, I'm sorry, murder is wrong. You are wrong about that because murder is wrong. Yeah, based on our perspectives. So I, I don't think I'm arguing from my perspective, right? So, so think about it in the sense of math. If you said two plus two is seven, and I said, I'm sorry, that's false. You're wrong. Would you say, well, that is that just your perspective? Yeah, but I don't know if that, I don't know how we could make that equivocate for everyone else. Right. So now the question is, 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 well, how do we know it? 
right? But but the question is, yeah. <laughs> in a purely argumentative kind of framework, am yeah, I appealing yeah. to something outside of me or am I just telling you what is inside my mind? Yeah. And so I think I get it now largely. I think I understand how it goes. The only thing that's tough though is how to like throughout history it's like well how do we know this rule was subjective and how do we know that one's objective i think i get how that i think i start to understand it better it's just the whole case of like differentiating them and i don't yeah i don't necessarily disagree with that overall kind of thing um so on or sorry did you want to say something well yeah i was just going to kind of run with that one here just really quickly yeah go ahead go ahead here's here's an interesting thought is i think you know it's often said for this argument to work there only needs to be like one example, right? If there's just one action that is objectively true, right? So now we're kind of looking at premise two of this argument that objective moral values and duties exist, right? So you'd have to kind of make this argument that there are actually objective moral values and duties. So if you can argue, as we kind of started with premise one, that if God doesn't exist and you don't have objective morality, um, you can show that kind of connection about how a transcendent you know, moral standard is required in order for something to be objectively right and wrong, then you would have to move on to actually showing or making the case that objective moral values and duties actually do exist. And, in, and for this, you don't have to argue that every single action, right, is objectively right or wrong, right? There can be subjective things. So, you know, uh, is, it, uh, is it wrong to drive on the left side of the road? Well, in England, no, but the United States, yes, right? And so we do recognize mm-hmm. there are countries or there are aspects or rules that is subjective to a country or place or region. Different states have laws, different countries have laws. Um, But in order to have objective morality, there only needs to be at least just one action. That's why you often will have people kind of appeal to kind of the big things, right? That is almost universally recognized things like rape, you know, murder or, you know, abusing children for fun. Um, And Mm -hmm. so if it is wrong to abuse children for fun, um, then I think that we can make a strong case you know, uh, then at least uh, there is an objective moral standard in order to show that abusing children for fun is wrong. And then that connection then leads to a belief in God. Now, one quick thought on that really quickly, um, because of kind of what you said is, um, I don't think you have to be able to convince every single person um, in order to make this case, right? And so here, here'd be a thought. And I've said this a lot on the show before, right? But but the example that I use for my students is I'll hold up something that's clearly one color. So here's like a camera lens. And I said, you know, you know, what color is this? Now, I don't know. If you, I think you can see my screen, but what color is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Black. All right, it's black. Now, what if someone comes along and says, you know, I think that's red? Uh, yeah, I would disagree with that. Right. So the question is, well, is this red? Is this just subjective? And if it, you know, if that's red, you know, if you think that's red, then that's red for you. And I think it's black. It's black for me. Or would we say the color of this camera lens in my hand is an objective statement? Yeah, I'd say the color of it is based on our understanding of light and reflection and or whatever. Yeah. Right. And it's something that, you know, this camera lens exists outside of us. And so it is not something that the color of this thing does not change based on my belief about it. This is a specific color and I can have right and wrong beliefs about it. And so if I believe that it's black, that would be right. If I believe it's red, that would be false. Um, You know, colors are not just my opinion or my belief, but there's something that's outside of us that it's based on, namely the camera lens. Right. Um, Yeah, go for it. So like, I guess then to, if, if you and I were together, uh, going back to what you said about the traffic laws, about like, uh, 
you know, like, okay, on the, if we were to drive on the left side of the road in the United States and there's no dangers or whatever, you know, you're just driving there, we'd say, okay, that's wrong. But if Frank Turek was here next to us and was like, what moral standard do you have to say that that is wrong? Uh, like, I'm like, what do you mean, Frank? We've made these traffic laws. We've done it. We've built it on a subjective level. Uh, do you think he would say that? And if he did, what would your response be? Yeah. So I think, you know, maybe he would say that. Um, but, but I think we'd have to understand or kind of think back to what he, he means by when he says this. So I, okay. I, I know Frank and, and he's not going to say that. Um, yeah, I think he, okay, okay. Hold, he cause that's he, how it comes across when, when people like accuse him of stuff like this. I'm like, what is this guy on about? <laughs> right. So, so he, I, I, I know, uh, he, he would agree with me on this as far as I'm aware, um, okay, that okay. not everything is objective and not everything is subjective, right? That it's a case by case basis. And so the question is this, in order to say something is wrong, you have to, as we talked about before, appeal to an outside standard that is above us. That is not just my opinion, Uh, especially he's talking on an objective level. So if someone were to come to him and say from a subjective morality basis, then he would agree with it. Is that correct? Well, so, so think about traffic laws, for example. So if you just say, well, I think we can drive on the left side of the road. Are you right? Uh, yes, but like it won't pass by. <laughs> well, if you start like driving on the left side of the road, you're either going to cause an accident or you're going to get a ticket yeah, for yeah, careless driving yeah. or something like that. Right. But so if, if we I recognize said I think that, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you could say, I think, but the question we're asking is, you know, just like, just like if I said, well, I think two plus two is four. And the question is, well, is it just because that's what you think? Or do you think that because that's the way it is? Right. Mm-hmm. And so if I came along and said, well, I think I can drive on the left side. Well, sure, you think that, but the, the issue is you can't. And if you do, you're going to get a ticket, yeah. right? And so, and so the issue here that we're, we're talking about is, is there an outside authority by which you can ground these rules? So same thing like if we're playing sports. Here's a common example that I often use is, is if we're playing a sport, uh, am I supposed to uh, touch the ball with my hands or am I supposed to kick the ball? Kick the ball. Well, it depends on, you know, what if we're playing basketball? As the basketball, then you can touch it, yeah. <laughs> right, then you can touch it with your hands. You're not supposed to kick it. If we're playing soccer, you're supposed to kick it, not touch it with your hands, right? And yeah. so the, the rules of the game are going to change based on from game to game, right? And so you can say, look, in basketball, it is wrong to kick the ball. Or you can say in soccer, it's wrong to touch the ball with your hands. And if you say, well, who are you to say that, Ryan? By what standard are you using to say it's wrong mm-hmm. to touch the ball with your hands in soccer? I would say the rule book. Right. The rules of soccer. Right. And so there is there is a outside higher standard. So it's not just my opinion that you can't touch the ball with your hands. And it's not just your opinion that you can. We are both appealing to an outside standard that is above us. The rules of soccer to say, look, it is wrong, objectively wrong to touch the balls with to touch the ball with your hands. You can't do that. And if you do, you're going to get a penalty. And you go, well, ref, I believe I should be able to touch the ball with my hands. And he's going to say, I don't care what you believe. You can't do it. And if you do it, I'm going to blow the whistle and call foul. And so there is a higher standard, the rules of soccer, that we are able to appeal to that is outside of us to make this right objective. Hey, in soccer, well, the rules of soccer is above us, right? But we made those rules. So now there's, here's what the difference is. So there are rules. So this is where there's different levels that Frank, I think, that would, would come and explain if he were here to kind of defend this. And I think I'm doing uh, oh, okay, okay. explaining yeah, a similar yeah, way, yeah. right? 
So when we're playing by the rules of the game, right, we have rules of our country. We have rules of games. And so our government has passed laws that they did create. Right. And so they did create it. But because it is now in law and that they are a higher authority, you now have a duty to follow that. Right. So same thing in my classroom. If I say, hey, students, you have homework due tomorrow, you have to turn in tomorrow. They now have a duty that they Mm -hmm. did not previously have because a higher authority, namely me, gave them a duty. Here's what you have to do. And so if they don't do that, I can give them a zero. I can write them up. I can do whatever I do to students who don't do their homework on time. And so if there's a higher authority that can enforce this rule, you now have a a moral duty or you have an obligation to do your homework, right? And so the question then is now on the next step, are all laws or is all morality function in this way? There's definitely some morality that functions this way where it is just the rules of the government or the rules of the game or the rules of the classroom that gives you an obligation for how you should and should not act. The question though is, are all, is all morality this way? Is the same true of murder? Is murder only wrong because our country decided that it was wrong, right? Is genocide only wrong because our country's kind of decided it was wrong? Or is there some standard of right and wrong that transcends governments or rules that is something that is not created, but discovered, right? And so this is where I think, you know, you could look at examples where, you know, when, when, you know, I've, I've heard, I haven't read all the transcripts myself, but, you know, heard stories of, you know, at the Nuremberg trials after World War II, when, when the German officers were on trial, they kind of argued like, Hey, we were following the law. We were doing, we were just doing what we were told to do. And our response is, but you should have known. Right, that, that you have this, uh, this, this built-in moral awareness, right? Natural law would argue that there's this built-in moral sense that we all have to know right from wrong. And this kind of goes back to, you know, my, my camera lens example that I often use is, is to say, well, how do you know this is black? And the answer is, well, because I see it. Right, you can just look at it with your eyes and you can know that this camera lens I'm holding in my hand is black. And it's like, well, what if someone comes along and says, well, I think it's red. Do we say, oh, well, it is for you. Or do we say, no, I'm sorry, you're wrong. It's black. And no, so then the I, que- I get, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I just, I guess like for me, it's like when I look at us, like creating the rules in soccer, say creating the rules in uh, uh, traffic laws of driving. Like I just go, we've done that. It just looks like we've, do- we've created a system based on subjective morality though. It doesn't seem like there was like this higher standard or higher deity behind working behind the scenes to help us do that. Does that make sense? I guess. Yeah. So I would, I would agree with you. I think in in the sense that there are some rules that are just created by our society, right? There are rules that we have that are just our preferences. And that's when we see different societies having different rules and we go, yeah, if you want to have people drive on the left side of the road, that's fine. We're going to have people drive on the right side. That's fine. Because what we're discussing here is not a moral issue of which side of the road someone drives on. Right. And so there are laws that is not necessarily based on morality. And then there are laws that are based on morality. So I think we're talking about two different things here. Okay. So here's a question for you. Yeah. If I were to, I don't, I, I talked, we talked about this a little bit on Twitter when I asked you, well, how about date, uh, insider trading? If someone were to do insider trading, is that right or wrong kind of thing? Right. And we've seemed yeah. to have calculated in society today that that was wrong and we didn't really have the Bible tell us such and so. So if let's go back in time, you, me and Frank 
before insider trading was illegal against the law. And I, if, if we had someone commit insider trading, Frank Turk would be like, yeah, no, no problem here. But then, uh, and then in another way, after it was illegal, if I committed insider trading, would Frank Turk be like, yeah, now you're wrong kind of thing. Yeah. So we have to figure out is insider trading in this kind of category of these are just kind of our society's preferences that we've decided yeah. how we want to live or has yeah. society made this a rule because they recognize and have dis discovered something that is outside of us that is wrong. And so uh, I guess maybe let me ask you, uh, why do you think our society has made insider trading wrong? Why do you think we've made it illegal? Empathy. Ex like, uh, we explain on that one. Uh, I think we can calculate with ourselves like, hey, like, would you want that done onto you? How would you feel if someone had an unfair advantage? Like if someone was like, hey, let's we're going to play. We're playing uh, soccer. But guess what? I there's a rule now where Kevin can hold the ball. Everyone else cannot do that, though. And right. and not even the goalies. Right. Only Kevin can and he can be in whatever position he wants. We would go. That's not right. That's not fair kind of thing. Right. And so that, that's, I think we put that together through subjective morality. Okay. So you, you, why is having an unfair advantage wrong? Because we think so. What if I don't think so? Then it's whoever, whoever is the most convincing at that point to people around making the rules. So, so if I have a view that says, look, having yeah. an unfair advantage is not wrong. And I convinced yeah. most people and yeah. we changed the laws to say, hey, yeah. insider trading is now legal. Um, then we would say then that becomes good. Yeah, I think so. I think that's how it would work. Like there was a time where maybe this is an analogous where I think it was actually in the Obama administration. Not to get sorry if this is too political, where <laughs> there was a time where congressmen could insider trade and then Obama made that wrong later on. Right. Okay. But the, yeah, based on the people doing it. Yeah. It was like, that was like how it worked. Okay. So here, let me come back to this for a second. Um, and yeah, a specific ahead, example. Let me apply this logic kind of in a different area. Uh, would you okay. say though, to, now, now let's say, remember, because it's like, Hey, maybe some things are subjective and it's just our preference. Uh, but what yeah. about something that is objective? So let's apply this to something that most people, uh, think is kind of falling in more of that objective category. And then we'll come back to insider trading. Um, so yeah. let's say we apply the same logic to something like slavery. Um, okay. in the 1800s, it was legal. The majority, or at least the, the most powerful people voted to have it legalized. Uh, would we say at that time, slavery was good at that time? Yeah. Like at that time, that's what people I think thought was okay. I don't think it so, was though. Okay. Wait, hold on. So we just kind of switched to epistemology. They thought it was okay. So yeah. that's absolutely true. People did think it was okay. The question is not, what did yeah. they think? The question was, was it okay? I don't right. think it was. Okay, but is it? Uh, are, are, no, I, I think that you're you're arguing not just what you think, right? It's okay. not like saying, "Hey," because I, I think there's something deeper inside of us that we recognize this, right? And there's sometimes uh -huh. is our language how we use it, where it's like, you know, now let's just switch it to something that everyone recognizes normally as objective, something like you know science. Um, you know, back in the day when everyone thought that the Earth was the center of the solar system and the sun went around us. Was yeah. the earth the center of the solar system? No. No, right? So even though everyone thought that, yeah. everyone was wrong. And we wouldn't say, well, I just, now I think that the sun's the center. No, I, I mean, I, I do think the sun is the center. Why? Because it is, 
right? We have objective evidence and scientific evidence that the sun is the center and we go around the sun, not the other way around. Right. And so in today's culture, yes, we all think the sun is the center. And back then they thought the earth was the center. The the question we're asking is not necessarily which culture thinks what, but the question is what is true. And we have good scientific reason to believe or or to know that the sun is the center. And so we recognize that us thinking the sun is right, is the center. We're right. Them thinking the earth was the center. They were all wrong. Okay. So I might be connecting something to you here by saying this, and I want you to help me because I, I think I'm going to connect something and I fail to see how it connects to your point. The thing with the sun thing is that we can verify that. And you talked earlier about verifying objective morality, but I don't know necessarily how that's the case. Because yeah. like, I think there are people in the 19th century that, yeah, like I can take a whip and rod and hit my indentured servant, man. There's nothing, or a slave. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, I think there's some people that could, would do that. You can be conditioned to do right. horrible atrocities. Like, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. So this is, this is really good. So now this comes back to kind of close wrapping up or kind of coming along this, this argument from the, the camera lens. So I think that we can gain knowledge, or I think there's different types of knowledge. I think there's propositional knowledge where you can, you know, something uh, based on some sort of proposition or some sort of fact claim, right? Um, you, you claim that, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, two plus two is four or something like that. Um, I think there's knowledge by acquaintance that I can know something by being acquainted to. I can know how the cookie tastes because I've experienced the cookie, right? You may not know how the cookie tastes because you didn't eat the cookie. Uh, But by me eating the cookie, I now have a knowledge, uh, not by doing some sort of necessarily science experiment, but by me eating something. Um, I can also know through experience, have a knowledge by experience by something I see, right? And I think that this is an example of that I see black in the camera lens and I can say, I know the camera lens is black. Well, how do you know it? Because I can see it. I don't think I have to do a science experiment to test the light reflection and molecules and all the kind of stuff or however you test to figure out what something's color is in order to know that this is black. I can, I think I can know with a high level of certainty that my camera lens I'm holding right now is black just by see, just by seeing it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I just don't see how that's analogous. So now the question is, okay, now what if someone comes along and says, well, I think it's red. Um, now, I, I think there's three solutions or three things here right? Is it either they were taught wrong, they were taught their colors wrong from a young age, two, maybe there's something wrong with their eyes, is that they're colorblind or something of that nature, or three, they're kind of messing with me. They know it's actually black, but they're just saying it's red because they're trying to kind of mess with you or mess with me. Um, and I would say, look, you you know it's black, right? You know the sky is blue. How? Just look at it. I think mm-hmm. that we can do something similar as knowledge by acquaintance or knowledge by experience, just like you can see the camera lens, I think that we can see moral actions. So I know that's where the analogy, that's where I disagree with the analogy, right? I agree with you. If you say, Hey, is this thing black? No problem. I will sign off with you on that. I just don't think we can all necessarily look at like we can, I don't think morality fits that category though. Right. Right. So when I, when I say you can see something, so you can see a dad punching his baby in the face for fun, right? That's something that you can see with your eyes. Yeah. So I think that when you see with your eyes, a dad just punching his baby and saying, Hey, look at this. Isn't this fun? And just punching his baby in the face. I think you can look at that and you go, wow, that's wrong. Yeah. But how do you know it's wrong? I can see it. Yeah, I would agree with that. But also, like, let's take if we take it a step further, let's say the kid was like 10 years old, 11 years old, 
and wasn't behaving properly. And then the father was uh, spanking the the child. That right. also, that will get, th- that one's not as clear cut for people. Some people are going to say, hey, look, listen, I don't, corporal punishment, it's not a pretty thing, but it's, you know, there's going to be like, it's going to be a long-term benefit. And then there's some people that are like, actually, no, we've looked at the psychology of this. We've got countries, I think Sweden was the first one in the late 70s that said, you know what, we're going to ban corporal punishment on kids as per corrective action. And every year we're starting to see more and more areas saying, no, this is not a net positive for the child, right? Right. So, so I want to back up for a second because yeah, yeah, sorry. Sorry. here's what I, here's what I don't want to do, right. Is because okay, we can, okay. we can fall into these kind of more gray areas or at least debated right. issues. Yeah. And yeah. we can say, but if for, you know, looking at the moral argument, at least is, is that the question is, are there, right. Is there a clear cut example, right? So I could, for example, pull up, I could hold up something that's kind of purple or blue or like reddish. And, and we might sit here and say, well, is that red? Is it purple? Is it blue? And we might kind of be confused about that, right? We can find something mm-hmm. in the gray area and I'm fine at least for right now to say, Hey, let, let, that that's a gray area, but let's just pull it back to something that's clear, right? This is not like maybe white or maybe red. This camera lens is clearly black. And so can we actually say, look, I can see that this is black and therefore I can know it's black based on my ability to see it. And so can we take a clear cut example of a father taking his six month old baby for no other reason than pure enjoyment and just punching the child in the face and say, look, I mean, that, yeah. is, that is wrong. And if, yeah. and, and, and we can, I think that we can know that's wrong because we see it. We can see the father doing that and say, look, that's wrong. And the person who comes along and says, I think it's good. I would say, no, it's it's not. Yeah, I would agree. But if someone were to come around and say, no, that's still subjective morality. That's just all of our point of views from it. I also don't see why that's flawed, I guess. Yeah. So I think this comes back to the end of the first thing, right? And this is, this is so good is, Uh I mean, the question is, (laughs) yeah, the question is, I think these are, you're, you're raising questions. A lot of people raise. and, And so it's always kind of important to kind of make sure that we're wrapping it around and kind of helping. Maybe I'm trying to figure out how I'm explaining it too, but this comes back to, am I just talking about my preference on what I see or am I claiming to actually make a statement about reality, something outside of me? I think it's all preferential. But we wouldn't say the same thing about colors. Why, why, why is when I say this is black, I'm not talking about my belief. I'm talking about something I see outside of me. Can we not make a similar I, argument with morality? I'm, ta- I'm not talking about my thoughts about child abuse. I'm saying the thing outside of me, that object, that thing called child abuse, whatever's yeah. in that box, that, that thing is wrong. Yeah, and I think we can only get there through. I, I can under if someone were to say, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this. If someone were to say, yeah, that's still subjective morality, I fail to see how that doesn't fit the equation. So then if someone says, look, that's purely subjective, then then they're right yeah. in saying it's a good thing to punch babies in the face for fun. And we're just going to overrule all or overpower all those people that think that. Yeah. But right. So so number one, I think that would be an example of like oppression. Why would we think it's OK for us to take our subjective preference and force other people to live like us? If they don't uh, want to. And, and how can we then justly punish them? That, I guess. And how can we justly punish them for doing wrong if what they haven't done is actually wrong? By the rules we create and the, the, but based on what we set up. 
Right. So, but the question is, have they kind of like, in a sense, agreed to this? Right. And so if, if someone lives in, in, in this place and we just kind of create this subjective opinion and then now we throw them in jail and they haven't necessarily kind of agreed to it. Now this is a gray area in a sense, because there are laws that we have to, as part of living in America, I subject myself to certain laws that I agree to do, even though I may not want to. Um, Mm -hmm. But the question is, you know, when we, when we punish someone, we send them to jail, we're saying like, this is wrong what you've done. And, and the question is, is, isn't that a, if what we're punishing them for is not actually wrong, um, but something that we just kind of decided as a country, the question is, is, is it fair to punish them for that? But then also, what if they got into power and they switched the rules? So would we say that a country that child abusers become the powerful and yeah. vote child abuse as law, would we say that is good? From our perspectives, no, or at least I wouldn't. I would say, no, this isn't good, but this sucks that we're in a society like this. Like if right, I so, was, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just saying, I would take it one step further. It's, I don't think it's just my perspective. Yeah. I would, I would say that we have a way, a standard outside of us to actually judge and say, this is wrong. Yeah. And I don't see how people make that connection. So, yeah. So, well, one is the connection is from a Christian perspective, back on the moral argument, that God is yeah. that standard. Right. And so God, because God is love, he has called us to love people. Punching babies in the face is not loving them. And therefore Amen. we can say it is wrong objectively. I think, so he, let me come and switch gears a little bit because I think you made a great point. If God exists, then yeah. we can say God is the standard. He is love. He has called us to love people and punching babies in the face is not an act of love. You violated God's nature in doing that and his command for you to love people. Therefore, what you're doing is wrong. But if God does not exist, mm-hmm. then there is no objective standard. And then you would be right that the person who comes along and says abusing children for fun is good and makes that law, then a child abuse would become good. Yeah. Like I would hope that would never happen, but yeah, like I, I don't, yeah. 100%. Right. So, yeah. So I think what, what at least we've kind of come to at least at this point is that yeah. you've recognized at least premise one of the moral argument that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would get that. I just, the, the, if someone were to come along and say, yeah, but all morality is subjective. I'm like, how do I, like, I don't know. Like I could see how they like make all that fit, if you will, or, or yeah. put into the equation. You know what I mean? That's all. I think that's probably what my hang up was. And I think I understand better, uh, for where you're coming from. Um, are you good if we go more into the, uh, can we wrap up on the whole indentured servitude or did you, is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Sure. Yeah. So just to kind of clarify for everybody else, right? So it sounds like you're saying yes to premise one, that if God doesn't exist, there is no objective morality. The sticking point though, is premise two on whether we can argue that objective moral values actually do exist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so let me just kind of say something and clarify, and then, and then you can take it away if you want. And I would say, look, I don't think that we have to get universal consensus, right? And I think that there are some people, as with the camera you know, illustration, I think that there are some people that their moral conscience is off, uh, that they, you know, uh, I, I've talked to people that are saying, hey, I, I hold strongly to premise one, uh, that if God doesn't exist, there's no morality. I also hold strongly the fact that God doesn't exist. Therefore, I also have to argue that there's no morality. 
And so I've talked to people who will stick strong on premise two that there is no objective morality, but it's based on by their own yeah. admission, I'm not saying all atheists yeah. are like this, but it's based on by their own admission, sure, sure, sure. a prior belief that there is no God and God is required for objective morality. Therefore there can't be objective morality. And that's where I would just say, for example, I'd say, but you know, it's not okay to punch babies in the face for fun. Just like, you know, you know, this camera lens is not red and they go, but I think it's red. And it's like, but you know, it's not. And the question is, how far can we actually go with that, right? What else can I give someone if they're going to say to me, look, this camera lens is red. What else can I say to get them to realize it's not? And at some point, I think there's a, there's a way in which we say, look, there's nothing else I can do to prove to you that objective morality exists. I can say, look at it. Just look. And we've recognized mm -hmm. in our culture, this is a very powerful way to argue because for most people, I think our moral intuitions and our moral faculties function pretty well. Do we have a lot of movies and examples where you just want to tell someone's story? Let me just tell you the story of what happened. And we can tell these stories and we have this built-in moral sense that we know the villain is the villain and the hero is the hero. And we have this built-in sense of what makes someone a hero. And we have a built-in sense of what makes something good or bad that I think that we can appeal to for most people. Now, if someone is still going to come alongside and say, look, I do not think it is wrong to punch babies in the face for fun. I don't know what else to, to, to say to, to prove them or convince them other than say, look, you know this. And sometimes yeah. that just puts a stone in their shoe to where it kind of works itself out to where I've seen people then change their mind after a while that they can only, as Romans one maybe says, you know, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It can only be suppressed for so long. And I've seen people then come back and say, oh, okay, I recognize it. Yes, there is objective right and wrong and um, kind of become more aware of that. So that would just kind of be my closing thoughts. If you have anything else on that you want to say, or if you want to kind of move on, I know uh, there's other topics. Yeah, I would just say like, I'd largely agree with everything except for the fact that with the lens thing, I just don't see that as analogous. That's the only thing. Like everything else, I'm like, yeah, premise one or whatever you were saying, premise two and all that. But when you make it out like, okay, it's like, it, this is like the lens, that I'm like, I don't see how that's analogous. That's that's my only two thoughts. Fair on enough. That. Okay. Fair enough. So, uh, yeah, like, so if, uh, if we had like, uh, if someone... I, I've had people like, uh, I've talked to Christians about this where... Uh, with indentured servitude on kids, if they were to go and say, hey, you know what, Ryan, we are not going to use corporal punishment as per corrective action on our kids. Uh, do you think, like, where do you stand on that? Do you think, hey, that's, if someone doesn't want to do that, that's okay? Or would you say, no, you have to do that, otherwise you're going to hate your kid? Like, where, where do you stand <laughs> on that? <laughs> um, okay, so how are you, in this sense, how are you defining corporal punishment? Uh spanking okay um so i okay with kids i'm i'm not against spanking um i don't spank okay. my child i think he's too young for that um but i'm generally not against spanking within reason uh for the training and trying to uh in, in the discipline of children but if someone were to say we're not going to do that would you say that's okay or would you say no you kind of should do that like where, where do you stand on that yeah, I think I would fall in the category of, of that is a, a preference based on uh, on family. I think, you know, as I've heard and I don't have this knowledge by experience, uh, but, yeah. uh, but other people, um, not all children respond the same way. Um, and so there are some kids where spanking is very effective, I've heard. And there's other kids where spanking is not effective. And so you kind of have to, you know, discipline uh, kids based on the 
that that kid's nature, that kid's natural kind of desires and kind of find what works for them. And it may not always be spanking. Okay. And so, so you would just say it's situational kind of thing is what you would say. So you would say if a parent, uh, doesn't do that, you wouldn't say, okay, they des- they don't necessarily like hate their kid or whatever. They're just like, Hey, okay. Like that's the way they're doing it kind of thing. There's no, there's nothing binding that they should do it kind of thing. Yeah. I don't see anything in scripture saying you have to spank your kid. I think it was like, well, the only thing I can think of is like in Proverbs, which is where it's the old Testament. So I don't know, maybe you would say that that's not the case, but like if in Proverbs, it's like, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child kind of thing. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Proverbs 23. Mm-hmm. Let me look up the exact verse. Please do. Um, let's see. 23. 13. Um, so yeah, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. So, um, this one, you know, in the ESV, at least says, do not withhold discipline from a child. And so that's where I think this is maybe more broad in the sense, um, that, that, you know, if you strike, if you strike him with a rod, he will not die. And then it goes on and says, if you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. And so I think that this context here is talking about discipline, uh, that parents should discipline their children and that through discipline, it teaches children what is right and wrong and ultimately helps them understand how to live rightly and not indulge in wrong desires. Um, And so I think that's what that's talking about is just discipline in general, not necessarily that you have to spank. Okay, so you would say that so like if someone's like we're disciplining our kids but not through the rod if you will really like you would say okay i'd have i'd almost maybe i should i don't have i'd have to like look it up now with the whole so when it says spare are you looking up the right one spare the rod spoil the child so here i here i put up right here this is uh proverbs 23 do not withhold discipline from a child if you strike him with a rod he will not die if you strike him with a rod you will save his soul from sheol and can you see me? You just, I lost you. He cut out. Um, all right. Let me look here really quickly. Oh, there he's back. All right. Hold on. You are muted. It says you're in the green room. Why are you in the green room? Um, why? That's strange. Um, all right. Let me see here for a second. Why are you chopped out? I see you here, but it says you're in the green room. Um, oh, remove from green room. Okay. All right. Hey, there you are. You? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. I can't switch off the, I'm not going to do that again. Uh, that was my mistake there. So, uh, okay. So with the Proverbs, when it's like saying, with uh, when it says Maybe, do not withhold discipline, you don't think discipline is always referring to like the rod, if you will. So I think the rod is an example of right of how discipline is done. So let me. I, I found another proverb here, thirteen twenty four. Um, let me see here. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, this may be the verse you're referring to. Let me pull this one up on here on the screen. Uh, Thirteen twenty four says, "Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves yeah. him is diligent to discipline him." All right. So is that maybe the one you're talking about here? Um, yeah, that one rings more of a bell, I guess, kind of thing. 
Right. So I think that this is saying, you know, sparing the rod is not necessarily that you have to find like a rod, a metal rod or something and beat your child with them <laughs> or with that rod. Uh, right. That this is talking about spare the rod, um, as it says in 24, there who spares the rod hates the son, but he who loves his son is diligent to discipline him. I think that that, that is an example. Spare the rod is is a, is an example of not disciplining. Um, and so it's talking about here as an important part of correcting and training a child to teach this child to avoid wrong behavior, to do what is right and to build this kind of godly character, this character that is desiring to do what is right. And you learn this as a young kid through, often through consequences. And so I think this is just saying not that you, you know, sparing the rod is not saying you have to hit your kid with something, but it's talking about there. If you don't discipline your child, then you are not loving them because you're not teaching them what is right and wrong. And I guess you would interpret that discipline is not always using the rod, but it's other measures as well. Right. Because I mean, I mean, in a simple sense, if we want to read this straightforward, then I don't see how spanking is a, if we want to take this literally, you have to do exactly this. Then, I mean, wouldn't we then have to go get like a, a rod and hit our kids, spank our kids with a rod like spanking your kid with a hand would not be following the scripture because you're not using a rod. So I think again, like, yeah. 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 Well, and like, that's like one of the things too, that I've kind of noticed is like, if you were to like speak about this, like kind of in front of an audience of say like hundreds of people, I guess like for me, one of the things that's too, that's also difficult is like you, when you put this stuff on a spectrum, right? There is a point in time where when does, you know, uh, I think we would agree there's a point in time, uh, with our morality, (laughs) uh, when things can go too far. Right. And right. I think what's, what's difficult is like, it's like, okay, I like, there's no, where do you draw the line on some of the stuff? Like, when does it go too far? When is like, uh, you know, spanking a kid too much, right? We've got, we've had, you know, as you know, we've got instances where that goes way too far. And I think, you know, there's like, this is where like subjective morality can kick in. Like, Hey, come on, man. Like he can, that wasn't too bad. That wasn't too much. Like, or some people like, like, listen, man, that was like way too far. You know what I mean? Like on stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the difficulty, right. Of, of moral knowledge in a sense is that there is a gray area. Right. And, and, you know, and so who kind of interprets that exactly in what way is going to be difficult. Um, You know, I think that we can take other passages of scripture into account uh, that discipline, while it can be physical, according to scripture, um, you know, it must never be severe. It needs to be done out of love, right? And, and it's the, what are you doing this? Are, are, is the father doing this out of retaliation? Is the father just doing this out of anger? We recognize there are passages in scriptures that, you know, don't do anything out of anger, right? And so like the, the goal as a parent is out of love for the child and trying to grow the child, right? We, we see this, and I pulled up here a second ago, um, you know, in Hebrews chapter 12, Right where it talks about, um, you know, the Lord disciplines those who He loves, right? And it's like, look, mm-hmm. if you if He loves us, therefore He disciplines us. Um, you know, it says, you know, for it is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there from whose father does not discipline? And in this whole kind of part of He disciplines those He loves, and so we recognize that discipline should be done out of love for our children. It should be done in a way that is trying to build up our child, to help our child learn. Um, and so therefore should never be severe uh, to the point where we're doing kind of physical 
damage to our child. And so if we are, most most people understand that to be if you're if you're hitting in a way that's leaving bruises, um, then that's considered you know by most laws child abuse because this has kind of crossed that line from simply spanking and disciplining to now you have left bruises, you have caused physical damage or physical harm to this child, and therefore we've seen that as crossing the line. And so again, I think where it's it's hard is that we may kind of get hung up here on the gray area and trying to figure out exactly where that line is. And that may be a difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas we should still be able to say, look, there is a clear line. We may not know exactly where it's at, but there still is a difference between discipline, like a simple spank and, you know, punching your child in the face for fun and saying, I'm disciplining them. No, you're not. That's not discipline. So I think there's some at least clear cut examples in that. Yeah. I think, I mean, like I, I don't know. I think there's like ways, like there are some compelling cases of avoiding uh, corporal punishment and using other alternative methods to disciplining kids kind of thing. And it's like, you know, we've got, there's some people that come out, Hey, listen, I was never spanked kind of thing. And I, uh, things ended up okay. I turned out all right. It's like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, um, it's obviously difficult where you, draw the line on that. I don't know how much time you have on this. I've got, we got about four minutes left. To. Oh dude. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, I, I, I did not do a good job of pacing time with all of this. Okay. I'm, I'm going to, sorry just if I went into here. too long of explanations on different ones. Uh, that's okay. That's okay. I, I got, I'll get to the drop of it here or to the very la- the main point or a big one for me was there was a clip. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter. It was from the whatever podcast so this wasn't me, but I was like, oh my gosh, like this is interesting where uh, basically they asked a case where if in a marriage, uh, if a lady is or a partner, whoever, right, is being physically abused, is that grounds for divorce? And the guys basically, the other people retaliated, well, look, the Bible only says, Jesus only says divorce is permitted through uh, adultery kind of thing, according to Jesus. So where would you... One, do you agree with that? Uh, like, like, can we? Is that does the Bible, in fact, only say that the grounds for divorce is through adultery, or are there other ways, like, th- say, through physical abuse or verbal abuse, that one could? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, let me pull up a couple of passages here uh, that relate to this question. So, yeah, we see um, Jesus's thoughts here in Matthew chapter nineteen. Uh, where he's asked about divorce, is it lawful? And he says, you know, the you know him who made you male and female from the very beginning, therefore man shall leave his father uh, and his mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Um, God is joined together, let man not separate. And then Jesus kind of comments on in verse um, nine, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we definitely have a clear statement here of that sexual immorality is a a justification for divorce. Right. It doesn't mean that you have to or you necessarily should. Maybe there's reconciliation, things that can happen. Because we sure, do recognize, sure. right, as kind of mentioned here is, you know, God, you know, the uh, they got, Moses allowed for divorce because of the hardness of their hearts, right? But from the very beginning, it was not so. So we recognize God has united people together. The divorce is not good in that sense, but there are some situations or hardness of hearts where it becomes permissible. Now, from this, we can also flip over then to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Right. And here Paul is writing to the married, I give this charge. And then it's what's interesting. He says, not I, but the Lord. 
The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, I think I just skipped over the one I wanted. Um, oh, um, oh no, did I, I think in this one where I looked up the Proverbs 13 one. Yeah, here we go. Um, oh no, let me, I just lost where the verse was I was looking for. Um, so you're basically, yeah, while you're like searching that, uh, so you're basically saying that there are situations like, look, like you shouldn't divorce, but if you do, it's not the end of the world at that point in time. You kind of can. The immorality is when you remarry is what you're saying. Well, so here, here's the other part I was going to refer to is, is just in a little bit. So here's starting in verse 15, Paul writes, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, this is going to be a highly debated verse, um, but we yeah. recognize that here, Paul, knowing what Jesus said before and writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does seem to give what most people call a second um, uh, uh, uh justification for divorce. And that is abandonment. Uh, that if you have an unbelieving husband and he leaves, he just pieces out, then it's saying, Hey, let him leave. You should not be enslaved. And so what theologians like uh, Wayne Gruden, for example, would argue is that this verse is saying, look, just like sexual immorality kind of breaks that marriage covenant, um, and that you should not be forced or to stay with that person. Um, who has done this to you in a similar way, if an unbelieving husband leaves, then the wife should not be forced to stay with him. And to be forced to stay with him who has left would be like being enslaved. As he says there, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You should not be enslaved or forced to stay with this person that has left you. Um, and so you, you, you do have the ability to get divorced in that sense, or this is a justification. Now, Wayne Grudem takes this one step further and he looks at this passage uh, where it says, um, in such cases. And so it's saying, is it possible that in such cases, not just when a partner separates, but in cases like this, then you are justified in getting divorced as not to be enslaved. And so then he asked the question, well, what would be other cases like this? And so he makes an argument that that would include abuse. That um, that based on First Corinthians seven fifteen, abuse is a justification for divorce. And he argued this at the Evangelical Theological Society annual conference back in two thousand eighteen in San Diego. And I was sitting in that room, listening to that. And there's a lot of pushbacks, and there's a lot of questions and objections to his view. Um, <laughs> I do, I, I do find, and it was more so if we open this kind of Pandora's box, so to speak, then anyone can say I'm being abused. Right. And it's that kind of question of then we, yeah. so it's and the issue that he kind of responded to is like, look, if, if scripture allows for something, we can't make rules based on every possible abuse of it. So just because some people may want to abuse it and say, I'm being abused, I can now get a divorce is not saying that therefore every woman who's legitimately being abused has to stay with her husband. Um, and so even though it may be abused, uh, the, it may be taken advantage of. Uh, it doesn't mean you then have to draw the line way back and say, fine, no one gets to do it. And so he right, tried to make the argument, and I think it was yeah, persuasive sorry. that this verse mm -hmm. does allow uh, for that case because he says, and his argument in is- In such cases, he's saying that. In yeah. such cases that abuse would be similar to abandonment 
and yeah. adultery where you have done something that spouse has done something that has severely damaged, hurt, or affected the marriage and effectively broken that marriage covenant to where now the person who is either being abused or was cheated on or has been abandoned now has the freedom to leave so as to not be enslaved to a person that has done them harm or done their marriage harm. Yeah, I get that. I think the only thing, and we got to wrap, I wish we had more time on this, right? But that's okay. Maybe, I don't know. Who knows what the future holds? Yeah. The only thing is that some, I could see someone reasonably responding with, yeah, I see what your point is in that, Ryan, but I just think this is a, this is contradicting to what Jesus said as what Paul was saying in first Corinthians seven there. Uh, like Jesus is saying, look, it's only in this case, sexual immorality, that's it. And then you've got a case where Paul's saying, look, in these cases where he says an unbelieving person, right? And that's just one case of an unbelieving. And so when you say in such cases, we're kind of, you know, that's like, okay, like you said, how, what, what, what else is in room to put in for those cases here? Uh, that would be the only thing that's difficult there is like, if someone were to say, yeah, like I get what you're saying with what Paul's saying, but that's different than what's Jesus saying. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's where this, you know, we will have to wrap up, but I think what's, what yeah, we I have to do here is there are a lot of issues like this in scripture, right? And we were just talking yeah. about this in my doctoral classes of that. There's a lot of issues oh, in really? scripture. Well, that seem not this exact one, but the, the, the issues that seem to be contradictory, right? Where, where it's saying like, you know, obey the government, but then like love the immigrant. Well, what happens about the immigration laws? And, and so there's a lot of issues like that where there are themes or ideas in scripture uh, that seem on the surface to be contradictory. And our tendency or, or what often happens is that, is that we want, then want to choose a side. Now, if it's part of like a political debate, then we like switch to our political side. Well, my side says X and therefore this is the one I stand on. And, and rather than can we do the difficult work of trying to reconcile these two passages and figuring out how they actually fit together uh, beautifully and help us to have a more full uh, picture of God's word. Because if we start with a point that, you know, that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that all the whole word of God is God's word uh, and God is not going to contradict himself. If we're starting from that point, then we can't mm -hmm. just say, oh, contradiction, throw it out. Well, maybe that there's a deeper level understanding that I have to understand. And when I do, I go, oh man, this is how they fit together rather than saying these are two contradictory things. Which one am I going to hold to? And so that's where I'm kind of saying, look, it, it, Paul seems to be saying, and at least in 1 Corinthians 7.15, that abandonment is a justification for divorce. Um, Jesus said that sexual promiscuity or sexual immorality is uh, is a justification for divorce. And so we at least have these two um, that are there, both in God's word, seeming to give justifications for. So we would then have to, if someone says, well, but Jesus said it, therefore I throw out Paul. Or it's like, okay, but let's, we'd have to take some more time and work through exactly what Paul is saying and why we think that this it actually fits with Jesus' ultimate picture. And I've tried to kind of make a very simple time, given the time that we have, uh, that you know, what is, what is the, what is what Jesus is doing is saying, look, if someone has done, if your spouse has done something that has destroyed mm -hmm. the covenant that you have made, the promise that you have made to love and protect and care for one another, and they have gone off with someone else, then they have clearly broken this covenant. Therefore you are free from it. And so then the question is what other things could also break that covenant? And we seem to say that Paul here is saying abandonment where he said, I will love you and care for you forever. And then the spouse just takes off. 
Well, they've broken that. So that that would kind of be the the principle maybe behind it of how these are connected. But uh, with Ryan, that, thank you for yeah. your time. I I want to say I actually understand it now. I think I understand it better. I, like I've understood <laughs> it better than anyone else has explained it. You've like I I get I understand where people uh, make that connection, but I still go with okay. I see where you're coming from, but I'm like uh, it's still like hard for me to like kind of like. I get how people, I guess, make that connection now, but I could still see it go either way, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the thing. Yeah, and people there, are going to so, argue that way, understand. and that's where, yeah, yeah that's, we have to yeah. kind of think about those issues. So, hey, yeah. I appreciate it. I'm glad that I can maybe bring a little bit of clarity here in the conversation, yeah, and I'm sure totally. we'll connect in the future. And uh, and uh, thanks for one to do that. Hey, you're, you're a first. You're the first person that's done this, and so I oh, hope it went well. Fantastic. And let me know what you thought about it. Maybe we can find some ways to make it better. So, <laughs> Kevin, thank thanks, you so Ryan. much for the call. Have a good one. All right. You as well. Bye. All right. With that, I hope this has been encouraging to you. And again, if you want to schedule a call, if you wanted to chat about something, feel free to let me know and we can either schedule it or you can pop on next time there is a live Q&A. Again, a lot of big changes and updates happening. I put out the video a little bit ago that went over this, but others that are taking place as I'm in my last week of work. Starting next week, I'm stepping more fully into this ministry, creating more content and having more time to spend doing this stuff. So a lot of stuff in the pipeline and coming forward. And so um, hey, subscribe, check it out, like it, share it, do everything you want to do. Continue follow this ministry. Also, we are in the last two days of our kind of fundraising challenge looking to increase the number of monthly partners that we have. We have less than 8% of our yearly budget that we have left to raise. And so we're looking for 28 new monthly partners. So if you want to have more information on that, feel free to reach out through email or social media. I'd love to connect with you and share more about what we are doing, what the support goes to, and what it looks like to be a monthly partner. All that information is down below on YouTube, or uh, you can email ryan at think-well.org if you want to get some more information on that. So with that, I hope this has been an encouragement. Again, if you've liked it, subscribe uh, and and check out more content that's coming. More videos are going to pop up here on the side and uh, continue to uh, help you. My goal is to continue to help you to think well about the Christian faith and culture so that you are able to engage it well. So with that, I'm going to take off and I'm looking forward to seeing you next time. Until then, continue to think well and think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. See everybody. Thanks for being here. Hesitate to follow